The Why Me Project, an exclusive presentation of Faith Strong Today. Episode number 219. Yeah, that was our last episode. This one's 220. So that's that's good, Holly. Thanks. Thanks for playing. One day you'll get it. One, One day, day not, get, but, not this day. No, but I'm excited, though, because uh, after doing a couple uh, reruns on uh, past guests, we get a brand new guest for this week. We do. And I'm excited because I know her and I've never really had a chance to talk with her about her story. And I've heard it's pretty incredible and it's encouraging and inspiring. So I'm excited for today. What kind of relationship is that where you don't know anything about the person who you're friends with? Well, I know what the ish, but you know, no, like you like. No, it's fine. <laughs> Yeah. Dear Diary, today I discovered I am the worst friend ever. Leah Gray, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? <laughs> well, apparently you and I are as close as friends as you and Holly are, so. Oh, man. I know the story-ish, but not All like right. the meat and potatoes. All right. Well, Leah, we like to ask the skill testing question because we never know where it's going to go. Who are you and where did you come from? Uh, my name is Leah. Gray is not my real last name. It's a fake name. So oh. there's that. I am Canadian and lived in the States for about 10 years, and I just came back to Canada. Welcome home. Thanks. Happy to be here. Got <laughs> locked in as soon as I got here, so I was glad to be on this side of the border with my family. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Growing up in Ontario, in Canada, how was that for you? So I was raised in Mennonite country. I'm not Mennonite, but we went to a Mennonite Brethren church in Mennonite country. So I had a pretty like old school, sheltered, really sweet upbringing, actually, like, you know, lemonade on the porch, being left out in the sun kind of thing. Nice. Was, yeah, I hated it. But <laughs> now looking back, it was <laughs> idyllic, you know? <laughs> so you, you, you grow up you in Mennonite country. And was there a thought of when I grow up, I want to move to urban society. I want to move to a big city because this, this Mennonite country is just not for me. So my whole life, all I wanted to do was uh, live in New York and wear high heels on a daily basis and not feel weird about it. Hmm. That was pretty much my life goal. I yeah. had like every Vogue cover on my wall and every escape plan to get to New York City. Second place would have been France. So anywhere but where I was. And I did move there. You eventually. moved to France? New York. Oh, I was like, <laughs> you moved to Paris? <laughs> Holly's just excited because she's learning all about this friendship. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. We worked together. What got you out of the nice quintessential, you know, iced tea on the porch kind of situation and got you to New York? I was, I mean, like, I thought I was really bad, actually, I should say. I thought I was very rebellious and um, and did whatever I could to kind of hang out with, like, the alternative crowd. Mm. I was in a couple bands. I actually dropped out of college to join a band kind of thing. Um, so definitely a lot of, like, the wrong places all of the time. And I made quite a few bad decisions, which ended up landing me in... New York, not necessarily was like a bad decision, but a lot of bad decisions that got me there. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's it's, I was very rebellious. You're an accomplished author. You're in a band, like was music then what you wanted to be when you grew up or it was still just a high heels in New York City was still just the goal? 
you know what? I am like a, I am so good, not great, but good at many, 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 many little things. And I honestly cannot pick one thing. I like everything. I, Mm. my parents forbid me from being in the music industry. So that wasn't really like an option. And I came upon writing accidentally. I, that was not, I mean, my grade two teacher said I should be a writer. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't the plan I wanted to decorate and, you know, I don't know, lots of hobbies. Now you also did a stylist kind of thing, didn't you? Yeah. I was a hairdresser before I started blogging. Um, it was, you know what? I became a hairdresser because I didn't know what else to do. And I was pretty good at doing hair and I figured it was better than working a minimum wage job at McDonald's. So (laughs) I became a hairdresser because the tips were better than waitressing. And that was that. Yeah. So I did that for probably almost 10 years as well. Was that, was hairdressing then the full-time job or were you doing that, but also doing music, but also writing at the time? No, I quit music to do hair for the most part. I tried to quit music to do hair. And then I quit hair to start writing. I started writing while I was doing hair, but I was really adamant that I would not become a poor writer. So I refused to quit. And then God kind of had me like laid off. So I, hmm. so I continued on with the writing. And I honestly, I've been fighting this blogging, writing thing for like six years and God just doesn't let me stop. Why? You know what? I'm very honest. I find that I'm saying things that other people just won't say. And I think sometimes he just wants somebody to just be willing to just tell the truth. Hmm. You know, I find the like commonly what I see a lot come along. I work with addiction, right? So mainly I help wives of addicts and I will have girlfriends who come along. And I notice that in most realms, the girlfriends are treated very much like the wives because they have kind of similar relationships. Usually they're already living together. And I'm really honest, like, it's just not smart. There's nothing wise about dating, marrying, being engaged to an addict. And I have no bones about telling them it's not smart and they should just leave. Did you come to that point in your life because you were always very honest or because of what you'd been through that you just felt you wish somebody had been that honest with you? I was always very honest, but I was not always very wise. So... Mm. I think through my husband had an addiction when um, when we first got married, kind of early on. And I think through that, I gained a lot of wisdom, but also confidence because I was very um, shy before that. It doesn't seem like that maybe, but I, I really was. And so now I just feel like I feel like I can hear God better at this point. I feel like I've grown. I'm not I feel like I've. I'm a 40-year-old in a 30-year-old body. <laughs> it's just a lot easier when you're confident to be able to speak the truth. Did you know or did you have an idea that he had an addiction when you guys were together? So I thought, I knew that he partied. I thought he was just kind of like every other, you know, I, we were in our 20s. I thought he was like every other 20-year-old who went to parties and sometimes drank too much and occasionally would, you know, do like a party drug. And we lived in different countries. So we would date long distance and I didn't move in with him until like right before we got married so that 
um, you know, I just, yeah. So I moved to New York and, and I, and I lived with him there and I didn't really see it then as much either. It wasn't until after I got pregnant with my first child with him that I really started to see it because he Mm. would not stop drinking or stop going to his friends. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm pregnant. What are you doing? Was that a bit of a shock to think that you knew somebody so well and yet maybe you didn't know them as well as you thought? I think I was harder on myself. Like looking back, I should have seen it. I should have seen that ahead of time. And I just was too much in love and wanting to live in New York and all of these things. I really didn't want to see it. At some point, it it has to come to a head where you either deal with the situation some way, somehow he deals with the situation some way, somehow. What did that look like? I was very naive and I had no idea what was really happening. At first, it was a year of thinking that he was drinking too much. And I found out he, he started going to AA and going to meetings with a friend for support in the, in the drinking. It was so easy for him to stop drinking. So for about a year, he just didn't drink at all. And I was like, wow, he's amazing. You know, he's so, so proud of him. He's like great at it. But what I didn't realize was that he was drinking to cover up drug use. So I had no idea. It wasn't until almost two years in that I really started to see it come to a head. Some information came out about him and his past that he just didn't want me to know. And that sent him over the edge. He got suicidal. The drug use escalated like ex- exponentially. It was just unbelievable. And I think I see that happen a lot too with other people. Something will happen and then it kind of triggers this thing that was somewhat manageable or functioning beforehand. So yeah, it was, it was really bad. He was in and out of the hospital and it got to the point where I just kind of forced him into rehab. So he's going through all of this, uh, essentially, or eventually there's like this ultimatum. It always feels like, you know, you clean up or I'm going to, I'm going to ship out. At some point, was there that, uh, that fork in the road where you, it was either, you know, you're with me or you're against me. There was many forks in the road which I think is something I didn't know going into this ahead of time. Nobody tells you that you might have to make that decision multiple times. So the first time to get him into rehab wasn't so bad. And he did an outpatient program for about like six or seven months. Then he started relapsing again. But at that point, it was so bad because we'd already went through all this other stuff. So we were visiting my parents in Canada and um, he had showed up. He was super late. He was supposed to have been there hours ago. His eyes were just bloodshot. He just looked horrible. And I was like, I know you're high. Like you can't, you can't be here. Like I know there's something wrong. And he was trying to say he was sick for like days. Like, oh no, I'm just sick. I'm just sick. I'm like, I know there's something wrong with you. So I just made a decision to not put up with it anymore. I called my landlord, I called and hired movers, and I went back to the States with my dad from Canada. I packed up everything we owned in two days. I left him with like a mattress, his bicycle, and his computer, and I left. And the kids never went back. Like my son was in school, they just never went back. I thought that would be it. It took him three more months after that to go into rehab. And he went for another nine months. And then I found myself again, having to make that same fork in the road decision at least two times after that. What about support? Did you have the outlet to get the support that you needed? 
I had parents who were help helpful. Um, it's hard for family members to help you. They're really close to the situation and it really hurts them. Mm. So that wasn't necessarily the best form of support. It, they tried their best, but they were hurt as well. Um, I tried therapy many times <laughs> and honestly, they're, it's horrible. Like most of the people that I went to, they're like, oh, well, you're codependent. Well, you must be an enabler. Well, you're this, you're that. And they're very quick to label the spouse. And I had this deep conviction, like I was not supposed to leave my husband from God. I did not want to stay. I was very ready to go. And God kept telling me, no, like you need to wait. And I had a very hard time finding anybody who would support me in staying or who could give me the tools I needed to stay. Mm. And pastors on the flip side were like the total opposite. Like, oh, you need to be submissive and you need to uh, let your husband lead and you need to let him do this and you have to stop taking over the finances. And I was like, no, you don't get it. Like, I can't give him our money. I am taking our money. You know, <laughs> like He gets a little allowance from me and that's it. And I'm not, not giving it back to him. I don't care if he's a man. So it, it was really, really, really hard. We had one pastor in Canada who was actually my parents' pastor. He wasn't even ours. And he was very, very supportive. And he connected us with a Christian counselor who was a former physician who really just kind of did stuff just, you know, off the cuff. Well, it turns out he had been like very good friends with my mentor growing up in Mennonite country. Mm. And she, he was amazing. He informally diagnosed my husband as bipolar. He was, he gave us so much support and um, I don't think without him, we would have been okay. So seeing him was like a huge turning point, but he was very, very, very expensive. Like I put every appointment on my credit card. We could not afford it. Do you find it odd that there are a lot of like pastors who are in that counseling role who who maybe not aren't equipped to deal with things, something like that? Because to say, hey, take over the like, let your husband do the finances and those sorts of things, it just you can't do that when you're in those situations. Was it just seemingly weird having grown up in in a church to get that kind of advice? We've gotten so far away from what Jesus wanted when it comes to Christianity. Like our faith is so like whitewashed across the board. It's very, and and that's great if you've grown up sheltered and okay, but I think there's kind of this like expectation that you should be sheltered and okay if you're a Christian and you believe in Jesus. And it's just not the way that it goes. So uh, although like at the time it was really hard, when I look now at at what happened, I'm not surprised about it at all. I think it's just kind of like a side effect of how our churches are today and kind of the Western Christianity, you'll never have to go through suffering thing that we teach. And that is not true. <laughs> yeah. You still go through suffering and we're human. You do. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And like my book is called No One Brings You a Casserole When Your Husband Goes to Rehab. And nobody brought me one. That's why, you know, because nobody helped me. Like the whole Christian community, I felt very abandoned. And it's partially my fault. I wasn't overly friendly. You know, it's not like I was calling them and 
reaching out. But when I did reach out for help, I didn't feel like anybody really showed up. One pastor actually gave me a book that had this whole chapter on how to like sexually submit to your husband. And I was like, oh my gosh, like you have no idea what I am going through right now. Like it's so bad. He's like, well, if you could just get over that part, like just do that. Maybe he would be more responsive to what you've asked of him. (laughs) It's like, oh my gosh, no. (laughs) How's your relationship now? Uh, Are you and your husband together or... Yes, we're still together. Um, he's going on, so 2015 to 2021 now, he's been off of off of drugs. He had a little relapse in there when he got mm. fired from a job, but otherwise everything has been, has been great. He's still dealing with mental illness, so that's mm. difficult. I wouldn't say it's like a perfect thing, but I love him and it's, he's fun and he's trying so hard and his heart is in the right place. So I'm very proud of him. How is he with you being so open about his addiction, your relationship and everything that is going on in your lives? He's gotten used to it now when I, that's why I changed my last name because he really just didn't want it to be associated with him. And he has a very good corporate job. So I am still fairly cautious about who I say what to in general, but he's definitely getting better. It's so far in the past now. I think it the longer it is, the more comfortable he gets, but he has no desire to talk about it. <laughs> During this process, though, you also did start your ministry when you were uh, in New York. Why start it? Why try to connect with other women who were going through a similar situation? So I started it because I felt like everybody I went to was really hopeless and everywhere I went, it was just doom and gloom and they're never going to change. And this is just the way it is. And they have no control. And I it really started, I started looking at kind of what the 12 steps teaches and I'm very much against them. I don't think it's biblical at all. I think it's quite satanic actually. <laughs> so I'm, I just really didn't want to subscribe to any of that. Like, oh, he can never change. It will never get better. So I decided to just kind of be a different voice. And how did people respond to that? Oh, they love it. They were, I mean, I didn't do any marketing. I didn't do anything really at all. I had no idea what I was doing and had 130,000 readers after a year. So it really exploded. (laughs) Yeah. No kidding. It did very, very well. Why do you think that was? Was it because you were offering a different perspective? Yeah, like it's happy and and as happy as it can be. I mean, I'm trying to just it's this is life. This happens. Like how many of us did drugs when we were growing up? Like it's it's just what happens. Some people are more susceptible to being addicted and maybe they have trauma or they have things they have to work through and we can be sad about it every day and let it ruin our lives. Or we can choose to just face it head on and do the best that we can and enjoy the moments that we do have. And if God has told you to stay, then you stay, you know, and you figure it out and he's going to make it all right. You know, it's yeah. the answer to this might be no, just because I don't know uh, your answer, but have you found in the last year, year and a half, two years that maybe more people are reaching out to you uh, and having a conversation about mental health or addiction or depression 
because of the COVID? And it seems as though more people are dealing with a lot of this stuff. I think that the mental health and addiction stuff is getting swept under the rug. Honestly, Mm. I had like four people overdosing on my newsfeed every week from between my ministry and one other one. That's it. And at least four every, every week. And there was nothing, there was no outcry. There wasn't, I don't feel like they're getting the support that they need at all. The wives are most certainly not getting support. Rehabs are not, we're not taking people for a long time. Thankfully they are again, but they weren't. And, you know, now I know there's a six month wait list. My, my, somebody was just talking to me and her husband can't get in for six months. Like he's an alcoholic who does pills as well. He wants to go (laughs) like six months could be a death sentence for their relationship, for their marriage. It's, it's bad. Mm -hmm. Man, that'd be tough knowing that you need help. And people say the first step's admitting it. And then, then what? Great. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. And cutting off your connection already, like it, isolation, I think is the hardest part for the wives at least, because they're already feeling like they can't relate to normal couples, right? <laughs> they can't relate to them. They don't get it. And, and pe- they, people just don't get it. So this extra isolation on top yeah. of everything else has been really, really, really difficult. And even online, I've noticed people are having a harder time reaching out. They just can't take any more darkness and any more anything. And, and reaching out is already getting really, really difficult. There's no, there's no one size fits all. There's no one answer to this question. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that there's no broad statement that you have either. But what do you say to someone who's in a relationship with someone who has an addiction? I mean, I like to ask questions. <laughs> Like instead of just giving advice, I like to ask some questions like, when did you get married? How long have you been together? Maybe they're not married. How long have you been together? Do you have children? Do you have a way to financially provide for yourself? Um, Are you feeling like God has called you to stay in this marriage? Do you feel like God is telling you to leave for a time? Have you considered separating and not divorce, but just separating for a while just to kind of get out of the situation? Do you have a support system? Do you have friends and family nearby? Do you have a place to go? Are they abusive? I mean, there's a lot of questions. So there's no one, there's no one answer to, to, you know, solve that problem. No, no, but talking like is so important. They just need to talk, honestly, and they need to know that, like, if there's a problem that they have somebody that they can call, it's so important to have somebody to call. It actually might be encouraging for some just to know that it's not a system that you have to follow, that everybody is different. There's different experiences and different results based on the situation. So I love that talking. Find somebody to talk to. And you know what is amazing to me is the health side of it, which is like a whole other conversation, but where I don't see that getting treated and talked about much at all, but we know like how your body gets depleted of like nutrients and, and how tired you get just from stress. So for both the person addicted and for the family members, like dealing with actual health is so, so important, like vitamins and minerals and supplements. And are you eating and are they hypoglycemic and any, all of that is really important. 
Well, this is the Why Me Project podcast, so I'm going to ask you that very question. Has there been a point in your life, whether it was in a valley or a mountaintop, where you asked of God, why me? I feel like I don't really ask that question very often because I really feel like a lot of this stuff that has happened to me has been a result of my own behavior. I have sinned. I made bad choices. I ignored God, those kinds of things. I think the only like why me I've really had is when I was working really hard on my blog for like six years or so, and I had plateaued like out of nowhere, just plateaued for about two and a half years. And then I was like, oh, you know, why, why me? But I mean, it happens to everyone. It's just happens to everyone. <laughs> I'm not really like a, a why me person. Yeah. <laughs> but that's good, right? I mean, some people ask why me though when things are going well on the on the flip side too. So why me's don't always have to be in a place of lamenting, if you will. Yeah. No, not at all. Mm -mm. I, yeah. I don't know. But no why me. Except not the really. plateau. The blog. Yeah. The plateau was really, really, yeah. It just because I was working so hard. I was like, oh, fine. Like, yeah. why? <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> you needed to let what? go and let God, right? <laughs> yeah. I took a break for like a year. I yeah. was like, I oh, forget it. <laughs> it doesn't matter anyway. Just, no one's reading this. I'll just, yeah. It's like on its own. I'll just leave it for a while. And I did some crafts and, you know, <laughs> rejuvenated myself. <laughs> and maybe well, that's what you needed. <laughs> Your uh, new book is uh, Six Years in the Making Out This Fall. I feel closer now to you than Holly is with you <laughs> at uh, Hello Leo Gray on Insta, uh, leogray.com. Appreciate you taking some time and uh, sharing your heart. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that each and every week we have an opportunity to talk about something different. Yeah, no, I agree. It's been really uh, interesting the past couple of weeks. We've had some reruns, so it's nice to be able to jump back into things and have some great conversations about what do you do if your spouse does have an addiction? Because as we learned today, different pastors, churches, psychologists, oh. like there's just so many different people to help, but you don't always get the help that you need. So how do you find that? Yeah. Or, or you get the help, but it's not necessarily the exact help that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. it, it's nice to know that there are people who have gone through things and have come out of it on the other side. And if there is something that you are struggling with or somebody that you know is struggling with a form of addiction, whatever that looks like, that there are a lot of great people that are able to help you. And so many resources. And it's nice to know that uh, this is something that you are going through. You aren't alone. Uh, just mm. from talking with Leah, uh, so many people struggling, especially thanks to this pandemic that we've experienced. It's incredible hearing some of the stats. Reminder that you can uh, download, you can uh, check out our podcast. We encourage you to uh, tell a friend, a family member, a complete stranger, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Am I missing any? Um, Just go to faithstrongtoday.com. <laughs>